All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have this time, this opportunity to study your word, to learn about who you are in terms of your existence as a triune God, learn about the roles of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to clarify our understanding and sharpen it that we may think more accurately about who you are and your uniqueness, for you are indeed a unique, one-of-a-kind, holy God, a holy trinity. Father, we're thankful that we have this revelation provided for us and that as we study it, as we probe the depths of the implications of who you are and how this impacts our understanding of all you created as it reflects to a much deep degree, deeper than we ever imagined, uh, how the universe reflects this, your essence and your being. Father, we pray that as we study today, you'll help us to understand that which we study, but also to illuminate our minds to the implications and significance of what we study. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in Ephesians. For those of you who are visitors today, we have been in Ephesians at the beginning for this is our 10th lesson. And we are probing in the last three lessons, and this one as well, the meaning of the Trinity. Because in verse 3, the passage begins, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that as you then continue reading in these next verses, we come to understand that the writer of of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, is giving a threefold praise or eulogy to God the Father, then God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In verses 3 through 6, there is a praise for God the Father, and each section concludes with a specific statement of praise to each member of the Trinity. There's a praise for the blessing of the work of the Son in verses 7 through 12, again ending with a statement about his glory, and then a praise for the blessings of the Holy Spirit uh, in verses 13 through 14. So undergirding the whole epistle is this foundational teaching of the Scripture, this foundational doctrine known as the Trinity. So in previous uh, previous weeks, we have taken time to look at and to build an understanding of what the Bible teaches about the Trinity because there is no other religion in the world that has a concept even similar to the Trinity. And this, I think, is part of a demonstration of the veracity of this teaching because this is something that is beyond the rational conception of a limited creature to come up with a teaching like this, and it is extremely profound, and you find it throughout the Scriptures. We looked a couple of weeks ago at the Old Testament passages that teach that there is a plurality in the Godhead, and we looked at uh, various terms related to the uh, language that's used, plural pronouns, plural noun, Elohim, 
uh, plural pronouns, uh, the let us create God in our image. All of these reflect the plurality in the Godhead, uh, different terms as well. And we looked at passages that taught about the birth of Messiah as well as the fact that he was, uh, he was completely, totally divine. And Micah 5.2, for example, talks about the birth of Messiah in Bethlehem, and this one who is born is one whose goings are from everlasting. So he's eternal. Eternal Eternality is a characteristic that is unique to deity. There's no beginning in eternality. And then last time we looked at New Testament passages that also teach on the plurality of God as well as the deity of Jesus. Now, today I'm adding a section that I didn't mention in the previous two classes, and this relates to the role of the Son and the Spirit, but primarily we're focusing on the Son, to the Father, his role of submission to the Father, and asking a question that has come up and has begun to be debated in the last decade or so among uh, evangelicals. This was never an issue up until the last 10, 20 years. And that is, uh, there are those now in the moderate to left wing of evangelicalism who are saying that this submission to the Father just began with the incarnation. And the historic orthodox, by that I mean the biblically correct position, is that our Lord's submission to the Father is eternal. And then we'll come to uh, an understanding of why the Nicene Creed says what it says and its significance. Now, we live in an era when uh, people do not think much about the Trinity, that if you were to uh, poll most Christians, they haven't been taught much or thought much about the Trinity. They know that's what they believe, but they really have not been taught well through the Scriptures, neither have, has the, the implications and the significance of the Trinity uh, really been probed in terms of understanding uh, relationships, relationships within the body of Christ, relationships within marriage and the family, uh, relationships in terms of individual uh, citizens of a country and the government of the country. And all of these things flow from understanding something that philosophers refer to as unity and diversity or the one and the many. And so we'll talk about these these implications. But there was a time in the history of our country and in the history of of Western Europe when the concept of the Trinity was understood to be foundational to the to everything. And two examples I want to give you. One, I because I touched on this unity and diversity last week, is the opening preamble to the U.S. Constitution. We the people... Those are the individuals. That's the plurality. That's the diversity. And we, the people of the United States, in order to form what? A more perfect union. That's the oneness. See, when we look at the Trinity, we see that the unity is not at the expense of diversity and that the diversity is not at the expense of the unity. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist eternally as three distinct independent persons that, that do not sacrifice their independence for unity, but there's also complete and total unity in the Godhead. A lot of illustrations come up that people try to use to teach the Trinity, but they don't work because the Trinity is based on the fact God is unique. He's one of a kind. This is what the word holy essentially means, is that which is set apart, that which is distinct, that which is unique. God is holy in his trinity. And so we find that language also in another foundational doctrine, uh, document uh, in American history. On November 30th, just two days ago, we had the 236th anniversary of the drafting of what became known as the Treaty of Paris, which was not formally signed until the next year. So in 1782, on November the 30th, they drafted that document, and it began. 
in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. I wonder how many documents, legal documents or treaties that are formatted today or formulated today begin with a statement on the found, that it's founded and grounded on the doctrine of the Trinity. And so here is a picture I downloaded off the internet of the, uh, of the original treaty in the name of the most holy and, and undivided Trinity. It's right at the top. It is the first thing that is stated in, in that treaty. And so they, the people at that time lived, breathed, and thought in terms of their Christian belief in a triune God. Here's another uh, copy of that. So last time we ended by looking at one of the key passages related to the deity of Christ in John 1, 1 through 5, and I talked about the uh, Memra teaching of the rabbis, which parallels and gives background to understanding this clear statement uh, in John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The term Word is the Hebrew word, I mean the Greek word logos, which is a title for Jesus. We see two distinct persons here, the Word who is with God, indicating distinction, and the word is God, indicating unity. And he was in the beginning, that is, he was present with God at the beginning of the time-space creation of the universe, Genesis 1.1. And then verse 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, attributing to him the omnipotence necessary to create all things in the universe. And then verse 4 says that in him was life. He is the source of life. That is a distinct attribute of, of deity. So all of this indicates that Jesus, as the Logos, is fully divine and is eternal, which is a necessary characteristic. And so pointed out, went through the rabbinical teaching of the Memra, which developed in the intertestamental period, which basically was developing these same ideas out of the Old Testament that the Memra, the Logos, Memra is an Aramaic word for word. It's the counterpart to Logos. He's both the same as God and distinct from God, number one. Number two, he's the agent of creation. Number three, the agent of salvation. Number four, the visible manifestation of God. Number five, the agent signing the God's covenants in the Old Testament. And last, the agent of revelation. So what we see diagrammed is that the Trinity teaches that there is one God in essence. Okay, the, the Greek word used to express essence or being is the word usia. That's the word that comes up, which we'll see in the Nicene Creed and other statements as early church leaders sought to articulate something that was not completely spelled out in Scripture. For What I mean by that is you and I think in terms of the word trinity. It's a great word. It's a great concept. It's not a biblical term. It is a term that was coined to concisely teach and express what the Bible teaches by an early church father named Tertullian in the late second century. So just because you and I have this word, this vocabulary term, Trinity, we can think conceptually more precisely than any of the apostles did because they didn't have that vocabulary. And see, that's what God wants us to do in the process of our understanding and meditating on Scripture is develop out what the Scripture teaches and understanding those implications. So we have God expressed as one person, one essence, and he is exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that the Son is full deity, the Father is full deity, the Holy Spirit is full deity, but the Son is not the Father, 
the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are three distinct persons, yet one in essence. I want to put a similar diagram up here, but the reason I developed this was just I liked it, and I wanted to see how well it would show up. I thought it was a little more, uh, more colorful, expressing the same thing. So we see these passages. John 1, 1 through 5 is foundational to understanding the undiminished deity of the, of the, of the Son. And then Colossians 1, 15 through, uh, 15 through 17. 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. Now, firstborn doesn't mean the first to be born. It is a term that refers to preeminence. He is above everything. He is distinct from everything. And what makes him distinct eventually is going to be the incarnation. But he is the preeminent one over all creation. For by him, this is explaining why he's preeminent, because he made all things. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. That includes the demons and the angels Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Notice the through him indicates intermediate agency because the ultimate creator is God the Father. So by being created through the Son indicates his role in relation to the Father as the architect, planner, designer of the universe and God the Son as the building manager, as it were, the construction supervisor who brings it about. And then God the Holy Spirit has his role as well. And Colossians 1.17 then says, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, I put that out there because that's a great promise for those who get a little worried about uh, things that are put out by the press, such as global warming and that uh, the human race is going to destroy itself and all these other things, uh, that has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that no matter what man does, Jesus Christ is the one who stain, sustains everything and holds everything together. That doesn't mean that we can't you know, pollute our area and pollute our nest, but it does mean that we're not going to destroy earth or destroy the planet uh, on our own. Jesus Christ sustains and controls, and God has built into all of the physical processes of the earth uh, that which sustains it and will keep it cleansed and keep it stable. Now, we looked at John 1, 1 through 5. We looked at Colossians 1, 15 to 17. And then we have Hebrews 1, 3, and 1, 8. Those are the three of the key passages that state this, uh, the deity of Christ, the foundational ones. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the brightness or the effulgence, the representation of his glory. Glory is often used as it is here to refer to the essence of God. Jesus is the one who, uh, who revealed God to us. Uh, John says in John 1.14 that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, referring to Jesus, is the one who explained him or revealed him or literally exegeted him for us. That's how we know him. So he is the effulgence. He's the expression of God's essence and the express image of his person. He is specifically the 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 identity of the person uh, of the essence of the father and he upholds all things by the word of his power that's what we just read in colossians one uh, seventeen, and then it goes on to talk about what this is related to why he is able to cleanse us of sin he purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and then in verse 8 there is a quote from the old testament from Psalm 45, 6, and 7. But to the Son, he says, so here we see a reference to uh, God the Father as the one speaking to God the Son, and the Father is stating to him, oh, your throne, O God, 
So the father calls the son God, indicating deity of the son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So these three passages reaffirm what I was covering last time on the deity of Christ. Now, the next thing I want to cover is trying to understand this relationship between the Son and the Father. And so we have to think this through. The historic biblical position that has been articulated since the Council of Nicaea down through the generations. Now, remember, the Council of Nicaea is 325 A.D. This is approximately 300 years before anything even appears to be what comes to be known as the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, People use different dates to talk about the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, some place it on, on in ter- some define it in terms of certain doctrines that become standard, uh, such as the worship of Mary or uh, the uh, uh, earning merit through the sacraments. That would come a little later, but organizationally and administratively, you get a a single church under Gregory the Great around 600 that is unified and functions as it does. Uh, in the future, so you you get this distinctive uh, entity uh, by by that time. So before that, we're talking about just the the unity of the church, the body of Christ, and there's no organizational uh, unity. It's when Gregory becomes the head of the visible church over all of the bishops of Rome and Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, uh, Alexandria. That's the time that we begin to see this new organizational entity. But before that, you have a clear understanding of these distinctions in the Trinity. The Bible teaches that within the Trinity, the triunity of God, there is an eternal economic distinction, a role distinction. They are one in essence, uh, but three equal persons. The Father's role includes such things as initiating and planning, originating, directing, sending, and having authority and delegating authority. Those are indicated by a number of different passages that talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit in relation to the Father's planning and sending and directing. Then we have the Son and the Spirit who are eternally in agreement because of this unity of essence. They think the same. They are of one essence, and they are in eternal agreement with God's, the Father's plans and directives, and they willingly uh, support and carry out his uh, directives. So it's not a subordination of Essence. That is what became known as subordinationism, that somehow they were less than fully God. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Uh, in subordinationism, you have uh, uh, people think about it this way because we live in a, in a generation in a time when people really don't like authority. And this has been going on for the last 50 years. Our, the, our culture increasingly just has a problem with uh, obedience to authority, and they question the very uh, uh, reality of authority, that this is not something that is that is good. And so whenever they hear somebody talk about authority, authority in certain relationships, they automatically think of them because of their own experience as being suppressed or repressed or subjugated, that authority in the mind of many means if one person is in authority over another that they're not equal. That is a an evil idea, and it comes only out of a satanic framework because the first creature to rebel against authority was Lucifer in eternity past. And so uh, he is still promoting the idea that that in order to deceive and confuse people that authority itself 
as somehow evil. Of course, he wants to assert his own authority instead of the authority of, of, of God. So we need to look at what the Scripture teaches because as the ultimate reality, God existing as a unity of essence and a threeness of person, that this becomes something that is foundational to understanding all authority relationships. So in our first point, it's clear that the Bible teaches that the Son during the Incarnation was subordinate to the Father. Now, nobody disagrees on this. But what we have is some that are coming out today, and they are beginning to teach that this is the, this is the only time when the Son is subordinate to the Father. So we have to look at that, uh, because that has, that has implications. If authority is something, and, and they don't necessarily go in this direction, although some have in the past, if authority is something God instilled after the fall, then authority is something that is established to control sin. But if authority is something that is part of the eternal makeup of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then authority is inherently righteous. It's inherently virtuous, and it's inherently good. And to question authority in principle will lead to heresy. So what, what a couple of verses that we have showing that the son was completely subordinate to the father during his incarnation, John 4:34. Uh, Jesus said to him, said to them, "My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work." Again and again, the son states that he came to do the will of the father. In Hebrews 10, uh, 79, is a quote from the Old Testament passage, Isaiah, I mean, Psalm 46 through 8. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So the Messiah came to do the will of the Father. Second point, it's also clear that in the future, in the end times, in eschatology, in the future, there is a time, the Son is still subordinate to the Father. Jesus, as the God-man, ascended to sit at the right hand of God, a position that indicates subordination, but not in essence, but in role. We can't confuse the two. And so we have this glimpse of what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15, 27, for he has put all things under his feet. The first he is God the Father, the second he is God the Son. He has put all things under his feet. This indicates that if the Father puts all things under his feet, then the Father is the one who's the ultimate authority who is putting in subjection all of creation under the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. He who put all things under him is God the Father. He's the one who's accepted. He's not put under the authority of the Son. So this tells us that God the Son is under the authority of God the Father in the, during the Incarnation, and he's under the authority of God the Father on into the uh, eternal, et, uh, eternity future. Verse 28 goes on to say, Now when all things are made subjected to him, that is the Son, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I think that's pretty clear that God the Son is eternally under the authority of God the Father. So now, the next question that we must address is what are, what's the implications, what are the implications of the terms Father and Son? When Jesus refers to the Father as the Father, is God the Father just the Father of the incarnate second person of the Trinity, or is the Father eternally the Father 
and the Son, eternally the Son. That, that these terms which relate to our experience, because we know what a father is and we know what a son is, that this father-son uh, terminology is used as an analogy to teach us something about the Father, God the Father, and God the Son in their relationship. Now, we know that in the Scripture that there are a lot of analogies that are used to communicate things about the person of God. The thing we always have to remember about analogies is that whether we're using them just in terms of explaining something in the creation, everyday language, or whether we're talking about God, is analogies do not walk on all fours. And what that means is an analogy may have 20 different characteristics of what you're of, of the the the, uh, the thing you're comparing it to may have 20 different characteristics, but only five are significant in terms of the comparison, in terms of the analogy. Nothing is completely, totally analogous on every point to something else. So there's a point of comparison, and there's there's other points that don't apply. And so when we look at the human relationship of a father to a son. One of the characteristics is that a father gives, uh, provides what is necessary for the generation and creation of the son. He, he is the one who begats the son. And so this is a creaturely reality that the son is created by the father. But that's not part of what this analogy in Scripture teaches about because, as we've already seen, there are all kinds of passages that talk about the eternality of God the Son. He is not a creature. That was an error that came up in the early church in the attempt to try to explain the relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, in the early church, there was this understanding without it wasn't an analytical understanding. By that, I mean nobody was saying, well, what does that really mean? They just took it by faith. There's God the Father, and there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. But nobody was saying, well, isn't that three gods? At least until the pagans began to say, well, you guys, are you Christians are worshiping three gods. That's just tritheism. And then they were forced to try to explain what they had just naively accepted uh, to be true. And so one of the first ways in which they tried to explain this relationship of the son to the father was called adoptionism. This was deemed a heresy. And it, this is the idea that if you have a timeline here, and this purple timeline represents eternal God, that you have eternity past and then the beginning of time by this vertical dotted line, and that marks the boundaries of time, separating time from eternity past and eternity future. According to adoptionism, uh, Jesus of Nazareth is born, and then at some point in his life, he is adopted as deity. Some people might put it at the virgin birth. Others might put it at the baptism by John uh, John the Baptist, others might put it at some other time, but that's the idea that he is born just a, a, a human, but that he later is given or assigned deity at some other event and is adopted as the son. So that was called adoptionism, and this was clearly uh, understood to be a heresy. So there was another stab at this, that instead of making the adoption of deity to the human Jesus at some point in his life, that the Son is created at some time in eternity past. And this was set forth by a deacon in the church in Alexandria, and the bishop of the church of Alexandria was a man named Alexander. He died right after the Council of Nicaea, and the man who took up his his uh, position was Athanasius. He was the main name in this whole, whole event. But what Arius said, and this is a direct quote, he said, the unbegun made the son. So he's got a nice little catchy rhyme to it, doesn't it? Uh, the unbegun refers to the father, and at some point in eternity past, he made the son. 
that means that the Son is not eternal. The implication is that, and this is what Athanasius emphasized, is that if the Son isn't full deity, if he isn't eternal and infinite, he can't pay the penalty for sin. You have to have someone eternal and infinite, otherwise there's there's no right, truly righteous payment for sin. So this was Arianism, and this is what is refuted at the Council of Nicaea. Although, as we'll see, the battle didn't end there. Uh, a lot of people, if you read Shirley MacLaine, don't raise your hand. This isn't confession time. Uh, back in the day when she wrote Out on a Broken Limb, oh, excuse me, Out on a Limb, she, uh, she like many pagans, will say that at the Council of Nicaea, there, that's where they made this uh, uh, uh handed down this decision that the New Testament would only be these 27 books. That's not what they did at Nicaea. That is not how the canon of the New Testament came together. It it was practice. It was a result of a recognition of what had already been become the practice in the churches. And in the early church, there were uh, none of these disputed books, none of these Gnostic gospels were ever accepted by more than one or two local uh, churches somewhere. Uh, and they were way off the rails in a lot of other areas. And so you, you didn't have uh, books like the Gospel of Thomas and these other Gnostic Gospels uh, ever, ever have any kind of acceptance by more than just some uh, extremely fringe, fringe groups. And But they did accept uh, the four Gospels, accepted Acts, accepted... Uh, the other uh, 22 books uh, of the New Testament. They had a little trouble at times with books like Hebrews because they didn't know who the writer was. And so you can't really come out and say, well, it's apostolic if you don't know who wrote it. But it was accepted and read, and so uh, it, it came along. And then you had some books that were written to individuals like Jude and Philemon that, that didn't get a lot of circulation in, in the first century, and so they weren't known. So it took a little while longer before they became accepted. But the churches of the early church in the first, second, uh, and third centuries never accepted anything other than the 27 books that we have. And later on, after the Council of Nicaea, the same Athanasius sent out a, a, um, a, an Easter letter as the Bishop of Alexandria and in there, he listed what were the accepted authoritative books. And that's the first list of the 27 books that we have in history. But that's not the Council of Nicaea. So you always have to be careful what the pagans say because they distort everything uh, for their own agenda, Some, something to do with the, their relation to the father of lies. But at the Council of Nicaea, they came up with the Nicene Creed, which is a clear statement on the deity of Christ and his relationship to the Father. But then there's political involvement. Constantine certainly was involved in pushing for that conclusion at at Nicaea, but within a couple of years he died. And then he has a son who takes over, and he, he's influenced by the Arians. So the Arians now win, and Athanasius is kicked out, and he's sent into exile. This happens five times uh, between five, I mean, between 325 and Athanasius' death, which is about 367. And so you have this ebb and flow, but by the time you get to 367, it becomes pretty evident to most of the people in the middle that Arianism was false and what Athanasius was teaching was true. And so you have the final acceptance at the Council of Constantinople in uh, 381. This is one of my favorite periods of time to read about about in church history. But that's the defeat of, of Arianism. And in that defeat, there is the understanding that the Son is equal in essence, but he is under the authority or subordinated to the Father. So how do we come to understand this from Scripture? Well, first of all, we see that the terms Father and Son precede creation. The New Testament talks about things that God the Father decrees prior to creation that identify him as Father and identify 
Jesus as the Son, the second person as the Son. Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, that is God the Father, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So in eternity past, he is saying that those who are believers will be conformed to the image of my Son. He's a Son to the Father before creation. Hebrews 1, 2, uh, God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Through whom? To what noun does the word whom refer? The Son. Also he made the worlds. So the writer of Hebrews says that the Father made the worlds through the Son. So he's the Son before the incarnation. He is the Son before creation. This indicates that this father-son relationship goes into eternity. It is not just something devised for creation. So uh, we also see in John 1.14 that Jesus did not become a son only at the incarnation. The word, which was eternal, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. That again indicates that he is, has this relation, son-father relationship bef- before the incarnation. So again, another verse, the most well-known verse in the Bible, many people would say is John 3.16, God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his son. He didn't give the second person of the Trinity who became the son at the incarnation. He gave the son before the incarnation. So these terms, father and son, apply prior to uh, creation. That father-son relationship was there. And then from Psalm 2, which we read for our scripture reading this morning, we have the distinction made in verse 2 between Yahweh, the Father, and his Mashiach in the Hebrew, his anointed, saying, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And in verse 7, I will declare the decree, The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, There's a lot that we can say about this. I'm not going to go into all the details, but this is basically what is what is affirmed at the baptism of Jesus when the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It is reiterated at the Mount of Transfiguration. It is stated by Paul in uh, Romans that he has declared the Son at the resurrection, and he has also declared the Son at the time that he... Uh, returns at the end of the tribulation period. All of this indicates Jesus is eternally, uh, eternally the Son. This is clearly stated by, also by passages such as John 5:19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, "Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever." He does, the Son does in like manner. Now, when we connect that with verse 38 of chapter 6, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The will of him who sent me is the Father. So we see that there's this father-son relationship before he is actually sent. And John 7:16, Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me, indicating, again, this father-son relationship and that Jesus has put himself under the authority of the Father. And then in John 8:28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Now, all this applies to our understanding of what Paul is saying in uh, Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That helps us understand that this Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is relating to an eternal relationship uh, with the Father. We see other things going on in Ephesians that also emphasize uh, this eternal relationship. 
Verse 3 states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So whatever else this means, before the foundation of the world, before creation, God the Father chose us in him, that is, church-age believers, as a group, that those in him uh, should be holy and without blame before him in love. This presupposes a father-son relationship prior to creation, and that's also seen in the fifth verse. Uh, we see it in Romans 8:28, as I, or 29, as I pointed out earlier. We also see it in 2 Timothy 1:9. Uh, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ before the ages began. So we have these in Christ, and it was part of God's plan to be in the Son before before creation. So other passages that emphasize the authority of the Father over the Son, John 14, 28, Jesus said, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. See, greater than I is not essentially greater. He's not greater in his character, in his essence, in his attributes. He's greater in authority. God the Father is the one who's in authority over the Son. Uh, uh, Mark 14.36, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but what you will. He is submissive to the authority of the Father. Same thing in Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. See, the one who anoints has authority over. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty. So he is. the Father is the one who sent. The Father is the one who anointed. Uh, John twenty seventeen. Jesus is saying at the end there, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. This is where Paul picks up his language of blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen, we read, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, see, that talks about role distinction. It's not a distinction in essence. So this isn't a verse that people can come out and say, well, well, uh, you know, men are uh, over women because men are superior to women. It's not saying that. It's not saying that God is the Father is superior to Christ in terms of essence. It is talking about role distinction. So this comes down to a very practical thing in terms of understanding roles within marriage and roles within society and and roles within uh, government and politics, that there's a unity, a oneness of nation, a unity of marriage, and there are distinctions within that that do not mean that one is better than the, than the other. Uh, you can look at um, a football team, and you have great athletes who comprise the team that's out on the field. Now, some get all of the attention because they are uh, the, the leaders. That's the, the quarterback. And you can see some quarterbacks are just uh, just phenomenal in what they do, and we saw a great demonstration of that in the Alabama game yesterday um, as uh, Jalen Hurts came out and won the game at the end yesterday. But as a person, he's no better or worse than anybody else on the team. He is equal in terms of being equal under the law of this country. He's equal as a person. He is not superior uh, in anything other than his role and his de- and and how he uh, fulfills that role, but he's not better as a person. Same thing applies in a country. Uh, you have government, but the government should not override the importance of the individuals. When it when that happens, you have uh, you you have uh, tyranny. 
On the other hand, when the individual people are emphasized and their individual rights emphasized at the uh, at the uh, expense of the government and the authority of the government, then you have anarchy. It is only when you have a triune, an understanding of a triune God that you can truly work out what we have, what the founders of this country attempted to develop within the Constitution, trying to achieve this balance. The trouble is we live in a corrupt world, and that's never going to happen. And eventually, even the best fallen creatures can come up with in terms of of a government is going to become uh, corrupted and fall apart. And it's not always going to work because it's comprised of of, uh, sinful leaders as well as sinful people. But what we see here and what's important for understanding where we're going in Ephesians is that this important relationship between the, the son and the father is going to be developed and it's going to be foundational to a number of things that are said throughout Ephesians. And so we have to start, as we should in every area of thought, with the nature and essence of God understanding the Trinity. So we'll come back, we'll review a couple of other things uh, next time, and then we will uh, go forward into some of the really fun verses at the beginning of Ephesians. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the, your revelation of yourself. And we thank you for being able to probe the depths to some degree of, of uh, the Trinity, this triune relationship in the Godhead and the implications of that for creation and for the roles and distinctions that exist even within uh, the unity of the body of Christ. There are role distinctions. And, Father, it helps us to not fall into the traps that many in our culture are falling into today because uh, not believing in a an ultimate triune reality, uh, they cannot handle uh, different aspects of life and different aspects of relationships. Father, we know that the only hope for our country, the only hope for us as individuals is your grace which has provided perfect salvation in Christ, and that it must start there. True reformation must be grounded in the reformation that began at the cross, the payment for sin and forgiveness, which is freely available to all by simply trusting or believing in Jesus Christ as Savior. So if you're listening to this lesson or you're here for the first time and you've never truly understood the gospel, this is the gospel. It doesn't mean you have to change your life or improve yourself or all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags, Isaiah said. What we, can, what we need is your righteousness, Christ's righteousness, and that is ours when we trust in him. For he who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And only when we have that righteousness Can we be declared righteous, cleansed of sin, forgiven of sin, so that we can have an eternal relationship with the creator God of the universe? And we pray that you would make that clear to all of us and that especially those of us who are saved would come to understand that this should motivate us to pursue a deeper, closer, richer, more robust relationship with you through your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.